You may be seated. Good morning and welcome to uh, First Presbyterian Church. Uh, My name is Dave Palmer, director of our university ministries. And if you're reading the bulletin, um, Eric is supposed to be preaching this morning. There is not some identity crisis going on here. Um, You get me this morning. And uh, he is uh, not feeling great. And so, um, oh, can you hear me now? I could hear myself. I'll start all over. Welcome to First Pres this morning. Uh, My name's Dave. I'm preaching, not Eric, and uh, um, in this, uh, uh, because Eric has fallen ill, in this uh, series on, our Holy, on the Holy Spirit, we've been lighting this candle as a way to acknowledge um, God's imminent presence with us um, in this space, and a lit candle uh, certainly does a wonderful job of, of reminding us of that and symbolizing that, and so I'm lighting this candle now. Um, for that purpose. And um, as we come into this sermon, I'd like to just take a a moment to pray um, for our leaders and Eric and his health um, uh, in light of of this season. So let's pray together. God, um, before we get into this message, uh, we lift up together as a community our leaders who um, over the past several months have been working uh, really hard, um, many extra hours, um, discerning and preparing and building with you um, as we uh, transform uh, as a church um, in, in this new season. And Lord, so many um, pastors and paid staff and so many volunteers have been give, uh, given tireless hours, um, and it's uh, come with a cost. And so we ask that you would give rest and restoration um, and healing, that you would buoy those people, Lord, um, by your Spirit, um, that you would um, not forsake their heart, Um, but that they would um, be so aware of your living presence and your living water in them, in their work. And Lord, we pray that especially over Eric. And Lord, um, we pray, and and really, Lord, especially in my heart, we pray that as um, these leaders uh, do this work on on our behalf uh, for the kingdom, that we would also be preparing our hearts to follow your way, which is a way of humility and submission um, to your direction and not our own direction. And Lord, we want to be ready for that as a church. So we lift all of these things up before um, we hear this message. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, this morning our text comes from the fifth uh, chapter of Galatians. And Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a community of believers in a city called Galatia. And in this letter, Paul is addressing two large questions. The two questions are this, how are we justified before God, and how are we to live rightly in light of that justification? Justification simply means, how is it that we can stand in front of somebody else in unbroken relationship? That sounds really churchy. How can you look someone in the eyes with integrity? Now listen, if you, um, you know, if, if I were your neighbor and I were to like break all of your windows and, you know, light your garbage can on fire, I couldn't look you in the eyes with integrity, could I? I'm not justified with you, right? So in all relationships, there's this element of justification that's happening. And most of the time we're not thinking about it because people are strangers or things are all good. But when we're talking about our relationship with God, justification takes on a different contour, doesn't it? Because we're talking about the almighty divine creator of all things, and ourselves. And so justification's a big question, really an eternal question. And uh, and so in light of that, um, out of how we understand justification, how are we to live rightly in light of it? 
In the Old Covenant, the first covenant that we have uh, that was given to the the, the Jewish um, uh, people, justification came through a communal agreement with God. And the agreement basically went, God would be faithful to um, this group of people and the people would be faithful to God. And, and that as long as that covenant was maintained by both parties, justification would be intact. And how they were to live in light of that justification was to obey the laws received um, by Moses and given to the people. The law, the Torah, what we know as the first five books in uh, what we hold as the Bible, and the first part being the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament justified through this two-party covenant, and then lived out rightly by the law. Now, Jesus comes along, and thanks be to God that he does, and he offers us a new covenant. There are new terms of how we're justified, and no longer are both parties on the hook, so to speak, in order for justification to happen. But instead, God in Jesus says, um, it wasn't working out with the old one, and it shows us something really amazing about ourselves and God. And instead, I am going to fulfill the terms of the covenant that you were not able to fulfill. I will be the fulfilled covenant, and I will invite you into a justified relationship without you doing anything but simply accepting by faith that that can be true and that I have the capacity and power to do so. And so in Jesus Christ, we have a new covenant. Are we tracking? Probably many of you are like, okay, Dave, great. Thanks for some great easy covenant theology. So the big question that Galatian, the, the Galatian Christians are struggling with, and Paul is really getting at, really is both, but essentially, so how are we to live rightly in light of this justification in Jesus? Well, Paul is addressing a group of Christians who are both Jewish and Gentile, and the Jewish Christians at that point are convinced that if you are to come into the new covenant of Jesus Christ, that you, um, you must do so also by the terms of the old covenant. You know, and imagine if you're Jewish, the, that, that covenant and the law of that covenant was so comprehensively shaped your identity that it would have been difficult to imagine that somehow we could relate to God without also holding sacred the Torah, which had been held sacred for thousands of years. And Peter himself, an author of many of our sacred scriptures, was in the same boat. He really struggled with this. And he said, oh yeah, we've, we've, we've got to do this. So, these, so the men are being circumcised who are Gentiles who had not been circumcised and brought into the Jewish um, law tradition along with the new Jesus tradition. And Paul is not okay. Paul is upset. Paul gets so fired up in this letter, and it's one of my favorite, um, uh, one of the favorite reasons, uh, one of the reasons I love this book so much. And so we come to uh, uh, Galatians, the, the chapter five of this book, and um, this is really the crescendo of the argument that he's making, and we're going to start in verse one, and he says this, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, so stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. In the great thesis, he says this, so I say, so I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then Paul, and then Paul, no, this is really important. Rather than listing out a new legal code, replacing the old legal code that we're no longer under, spelling out all the new rules, he does what Jesus did, which is he articulated the new way of life by defining its fruits, the results. You're going to know a tree by its fruit, Jesus says. And Paul says this about the fruit of, the, of our flesh and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. And uh, that last one, I heard that word for the first time in Sunday school Praise be to God to that seventh grade teacher that explained that one to me. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, but, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A couple important definitions. What is Paul talking about when he is talking about freedom and slavery? What is Paul talking about when he's talking about slavery and freedom? What he means by slavery, I believe, is this, that slavery is commitment to a way of life that leads to death. Slavery is commitment to a way of life that leads to death. And sometimes slavery feels like freedom at first. So it might not be obvious on the outset, but eventually the fruit is born. Paul addresses two kinds of slaveries in this passage. The first slavery is slavery to obedience to the law. Slavery to obedience to the law. The idea that you will find life, the way to life, is obeying a set of rules. And that when you do that, you will have the good life, the God life. Now, the, the problem with that, that Paul, um, in, in other letters written to other communities of Christians, outlines um, so profoundly, is that the, none of us have the capacity to actually follow the rules that outline the full righteousness of God. And so this way of rule following ultimately is slavery. It can't be done. The second form of slavery, a commitment that leads to death, 
is the slavery of following yourself or the flesh. The slavery of following yourself or the flesh. When Paul's talking about the flesh, he's talking, this word is, it's like really, like literally flesh, but the idea is that you're following whatever it is that you see fit, what you would like to do. And what's so interesting is that Paul's definition of slavery is actually the same definition that our culture embraces as freedom. That today in our Western world, freedom is defined by our capacity to do whatever we want to do when we want to do. But Paul says, no, slavery is following yourself, which ultimately leads to death. In contrast to slavery, freedom is commitment to Christ's way that leads to life. Freedom is commitment to Christ's way that leads to life. This is why Jesus said, narrow is the path, narrow is the gate. Jesus is not saying only a few people are going to get in because I'm a stingy like club owner, like I only want a few people in. What he's saying very clearly is there's a narrow way, there is one way into real life. That's a commitment to my way of life. That's real freedom. So, what is commitment to Christ's way of life? Well, I'll give you a secret. It's not a new written law. It's not a new book. What Paul says is this, after this massive argument coming into chapter 5, building up and building up, he says, and you've got to be wondering if you're hearing this letter for the first time, what's Paul going to say if it's not the law, if we're not getting circumcised, if the, the Torah is out, then what do we do? And Paul simply says this, he says, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. That we live in the constant, never-ending presence of God, seeking His direction in all moments of our life and seeking His power, His capacity to actually live it. Walk by the Spirit. Now, Paul thinks that this is I mean, my sense is when I read this letter that Paul's, like, heart and mind are exploding with how amazing that this new covenant is with Jesus and this invitation to walk in the Spirit. Because, see, Paul is a trained Pharisee, a trained legal expert of the Jewish law. If there was anyone that understood the weight of the old covenant, how difficult it was to live it, if anyone could understand how that was a certain slavery and how real freedom is this new way in the Spirit, it's Paul. Paul wants us to understand that we begin in the presence of God being justified. How amazing this is. In, in chapter 3, he says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Not by what you do to your body, circumcision, etc. Not by your purity code not by your keeping of holidays and your sacrifices, none of those things. You are children of God because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Children, before you've done anything. That's a good deal. Why would you walk away from that? I think Paul's also thinking, listen, we're not left with a huge rule book here, folks. Do you know the weight of 613 laws? I do. But Paul, even in this passage, summarizes the law of Jesus in one command, right? 
Whew. Now that sounds like freedom to me. I, I, there's probably about three rules in my life that I'm supposed to follow in my household, and my wife um, is um, very generous to dictate them um, accordingly. And the first rule is this. Do not leave... Do not leave the kitchen towel anywhere but on the towel rack in our kitchen. And that's probably one, two, and three. And you know what? My wife is correct. She is absolutely correct about that policy. She's not a hard woman to please, sincerely. She's a wonderful person. I can't even follow that rule. <laughs> 613. Why would you trade it? That's slavery. We're not left to live by our own moral grit. We're not left to live by our own moral grit. Here's the way to life. Here's the rule book. This is what you need to do. Now go and do it. That's not what happens in the new covenant. That's not what happens in Jesus Christ. Instead, instead, Jesus says, I have, I have fulfilled the terms of the covenant. I offer you the same power and capacity in which I was able to fulfill this way and right way of life and offer it to you. A wise man once told me this in this church, and this is wisdom that will forever stick with me. The gospel is not about self-improvement. The gospel is about self-replacement. The gospel is not self-improvement where God comes to us and reveals this really special, important way to life, downloads all the information in various different forms that we can digest in our own time and our own way, and through our own process where we sit in the chair of digesting this, this intel and, and practices that we improve ourselves to godliness. That is not what is happening here. The gospel is about self-replacement. No longer are we guided by our flesh, but we are guided by the Spirit. That's why in chapter 2 of this exact same letter, Paul says this, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I died to the rule book. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, right? I no longer live, self-replacement, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am guided, I walk by the Spirit who replaces my mind and my flesh with the true way to life so that I can live a commitment of freedom which leads to life. We can see why Paul is so impassioned about this community of Christians who have bought on to a gospel that undermines the true gospel of freedom in Christ Jesus. Well, Paul's writings have given me pause, and I believe that um, they ought to, perhaps, for some of us in this room as well, give us pause as well, because I believe that we are susceptible to a few of the similar um, beliefs that undermine this gospel. And ironically, I think that these things come to us in some of our tradition's greatest strengths, Two great strengths that can also be our weakness in our Reformed tradition. And if you're new to this church, you've never walked into Presbyterian church, and you don't know what I'm talking about, just sit back and listen, and maybe it'll make sense to you. For many of us, this might make a lot of sense. Two great strengths that can also be our weakness. 
In our Reformed tradition, we exalt and raise up the authority of Scripture. We are descendants of Luther's great five solas, which means simply, I think, in Latin. Is that right? I didn't have to take Latin as a kid. I wish Carl was over here still. He would really help me out with this stuff. But one of, one of Luther's solas is sola scriptura, only by Scripture. The authority of Scripture is our ultimate authority on understanding who God is and God's revelation to us. And really, Luther is, uh, Luther is addressing an issue where um, the, the Roman Catholic Church under, understood authority to be both Scripture, the leadership of the church, and the tradition of the church. And things seem to get out of hand, and so he's addressing that. He's saying, no, no, let's just bring it back to just one thing we know we can rely on, the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture. And in practice, we regard the authority of Scripture to be above the Holy Spirit. Excuse me. In theory, in our theology, in our systematic theology, when we're talking about Scripture as it relates to God's imminent presence, usually Reformed theologians get it right. And they say, of course, the Holy Spirit, God himself, the living God, is actually the ultimate authority. And Scripture um, is a part of that authority, but is not larger than that authority. But in practice, the way we practice as Reformed people, we often practice that the authority of Scripture is greater than the authority of God's presence and his Spirit. The Word of God is not limited to the Holy Scriptures. Christ himself is the word of God. Scripture proclaims it. In the beginning was the word. And and it's not talking about our book, our canon. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. Christ himself is the transcendent, eternal, living word of God. When, When Christ speaks, that's the word of God. And he's spoken to us in many, many different ways. And one essential way is what we call Scripture, which is why we call it the Word of God. But how is it that we've made the book greater than the author? How is it that we've made the book greater than the author? I mean, imagine just the absurdity of this. The idea that, like, we have a book that is literally the words of life. And we have it with us. And we love it and we consume it and we're so grateful for it. All the while, while the author is sitting right next to the book, offering not just the wisdom from the book, but, but, the, but the content itself in our own lives through his presence in our life. No, no, I just, I got the book, I'm good. All things fall under submission to the word of God including our very reading and implementation of Scripture. See, Scripture without spirit becomes slavery. Scripture without spirit becomes slavery. When we read the true authoritative words of God in what the book we call the Bible, when we read those without the spirit, we can turn those words by your flesh into slavery and bondage. And you know what this looks like. It looks like legalism. It looks like hypocrisy. It looks like Phariseeism. The same book that I believe the Spirit used to prompt abolitionists 
to eliminate the institution of slavery is the same book that the people who preserved the institution of slavery with. What's the difference? The book didn't change. Scripture without spirit becomes slavery. And a little humble pie for all of us, including myself, as Bible-centric people, remember, the kingdom of God was born in illiterate, largely illiterate communities that did not even have the Bible. If you were a Galatian in this time, you were lucky to get an awesome, profound, inspired letter from an apostle of Jesus Christ. If not, you had the reliable testimony of people that witnessed Jesus and his teachings. And you had what the disciples were commanded by Christ to give, to to make disciples by teaching them everything that Jesus had taught them and reminding them this, I am always with you, even to the end of the age. Not command them, share the teachings and let them know the book is coming later and they can figure it out once they get it. God promises his spirit. All right, that's the first great strength of our tradition. The second, and I'll try and make it a little more brief, the second is this, our pursuit of knowledge. And these things really kind of go together. But in the Reformed tradition, we love our brain. And um, Carl brought it up last week, you know, the, the Presbyterian stick figure with the large head and the skinny body. When I was a student, uh, my first experience in a Presbyterian church was in college. And uh, our church talked about the, the life of the mind. And the subtext was, we care about our brain more than other Christians normally do. And it was probably true. Honestly, we loved being next to a university. We loved attracting, you know, faculty and, and intellectuals and academics. I think at the time we hired, you know, like resident PhD people just to be on our staff so we could learn from their intelligence and their wisdom. I mean, all really great things. Life of the mind. And that's good for us to invest in our God-given reason, right? For us to think well about what's in front of us. That's not a bad thing. But often the liability becomes that our confidence grows in our intellect. Our confidence becomes in our intellect. We'll know the right way to live when we read the Bible correctly and create theologically sound ministry models. Faithful faithful sermons that are biblically true and ministry models that are theologically sound. And we can know these things when we think well and have good systematic theology, etc. If it's all there in the book, then we've just got to use our intellect to put it together. But as General Akbar says in Return of the Jedi, it's a trap. Thanks for laughing. I appreciate that. (laughs) And I know this trap um, really, really intimately. Um, This has been my story. This has been my story. I I grew up in, uh, in faith in a college ministry that was by all means thriving. It was the golden age of college ministry in Presbyterian churches in the model that we know and love and use even in this church. And on a Tuesday night, and this was not an exaggeration because we actually counted how many name tags we handed out, 
There would be easily over 800 students on a Tuesday night willing to sit on a gymnasium floor and worship together and hear a sermon, etc. I mean, these were like boom days for college ministry. And I grew up in this ministry. I learned great faith, and I learned how to follow Jesus in this ministry. And I was identified as someone who had gifts to be a leader in college ministry. And I was discipled by the guy who was like really great at, at, at college ministry. You, many of you might know him, Mike Gaffney, a good friend and mentor to this day. And I will never forget the time I was walking on 45th Street in Seattle, and Mike looked at me and said, Dave, someday I believe you can do my job. Whew. What a thing. Well, that sent me to Southern California to work in college ministry with this model that I had learned and loved at Malibu Presbyterian Church and then brought us out here almost seven years ago here to Boulder, Colorado, college ministry. But soon after I left the, um, the, the mothership, the model stopped working as well as it had. And precipitously, year over year, our effectiveness in the way we did college ministry with this model began to decline. And it wasn't just me, it was other ministries as well. So I did what was, was, was reasonable. I, I doubled down on the model. You know, I, I rethought, okay well, what, okay, well, what if we just tinker with this and we do that, we get a little innovative here, but we keep the, the, this, we need to do it this way. This is, I know that this works. And in the meantime, I went to Fuller Seminary, and I, I earned a, a, an MDiv. It took me seven years, but I did it. And it pow powerful education. And let me tell you, I learned really good theology there, like profound theology. I encourage everyone to go to Fuller over any other seminary, sincerely. And, um, and so here I am, doubling down on the ministry model and doubling down on good theology with our students. Convinced, man, I'm doing this right. I'm, I'm, I'm running the playbook. Same results. And at the end of the day, I started to really ask this core question. If I'm doing the right thing and it's not working, I must be the problem. I must be the problem. And it, and it uh, led to a point where I asked really honestly and out loud with people close to me, I, I don't think I'm supposed to do this anymore. Uh, and in fact, I, I can't do this anymore. God, I, I, if I continue to do this, I, I'm literally going to incinerate. And, 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 and more than that, like, I, I can't with integrity continue. Um, I, I don't even, I know what it takes to do this, to run this ministry model, and what it takes to preach good theology and teach good theology. And I know that I don't have the capacity to do it. And so I came before the Lord, you know, really ready for, to call his bluff. And I said, God, I can't do this way anymore. I can't do it. And uh, I sense the Lord saying something like this, good, good. I'm not going to, I haven't been asking you to do that. That's, that's not the assignment. The assignment of, of right living isn't finding the right answers in the book, coming up with good theology and then executing those things in the way that we live. The assignment has always been walk by the Spirit the presence of God. I will confess to you that in the very first time as a spiritual leader in this community, I begin my day um, in something called prayer where I come into my office usually about 8.15 after I drop Parker off at preschool and I light a candle 
and I just sit in the presence of the Lord for a while and listen. Guys, I've been doing this for over a dozen years. That's not how I start my day. I've got important emails to answer. I've got important books to read. I've got important theology to create. I've got programs to build. We've, we've got declining membership. We've got to work harder. Walk by the Spirit, Christ says. The kingdom of God will not come as a result. It will not come in our hearts. It won't come in this church. It won't come in this city or this world as a result of great ministry models or good theology. It has and will always and only come through the active presence of God and people living and walking in God's presence together with Him. Seeking His face, seeking His power, seeking His direction and wisdom. Not by your own might, but by His. Not by your own wisdom, but by His. Not by your own direction and intellect, but by His. I'm pleased to, um, to share with you that there is Man, which time didn't exist? I'm sorry. It doesn't on Tuesday night, but it does here. <laughs> I'm really pleased to share with you that there is no book that you need to read that you have not already read. There's no secret hack to walking in the Spirit. The way of Christ is the way of walking in the Spirit. Christ Himself modeled the way that we walk in the Spirit, He did Himself. And they're the simple spiritual disciplines that many of us have learned in the church and maybe not totally understood why we're being taught them. Jesus started his day in prayer listening to his father's voice. Jesus um, refreshed the way that he understood his world um, by fasting. Jesus rested one day so that he could be centered on what true rest was and trust in his father. Jesus worshiped with other people in community to be reminded of the truth of the Father. There's no magic pill. There's no new books. It's the well-trodden way of walking the way of Jesus with this simple invitation and command in mind. Walk by the Spirit, not by your flesh. Here's one really practical way we can do this. And um, I'm just going to ask for your grace on this, but here's the deal. We're really good at hearing somebody talk for a long time, and then we just go home, but we never practice what we preach. And so we're literally going to practice what we preach. Um, on the screen is a simple uh, prayer, a simple breath prayer. This is a simple um, way that Christians have prayed and, um, to um, understand God's presence in their life, praying simple prayers um, on the inhale and exhale. So this is a prayer where you'd pray, King Jesus on the way in, and exhale, live in me on the way out. But these words, King Jesus, live in me. King Jesus, lead me. The invitation is for you to implement a prayer like this into moments in your day to recenter yourself on what you're doing and who you're following and how you're living, the presence of God. So what we're gonna do is just spend a few minutes um, in stillness and in silence praying this centering prayer together now.